1: So thank you very
2: much. Go check out the site,
1: strengthguild.com. Scroll down to Iron Radio Collections and
0: support the show. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and nutrition professor of about 20 years, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder.
1: Hey, this is Dr. Mike D. Nelson, associate professor at the Kerrigan Institute, creator of the Flex Diet Cert, and still home in Minnesota.
2: And this is Wendy Earl Registered Dietitian, Nutritionist, Certified International Society of Sports Nutritionists, and super excited to be here. I feel so blessed and honored. I've been following you guys for several years, so I just feel like I'm totally fangirling over here.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Cool. (laughs) Um, Wendy, are you going to ISSN this year by chance? Are you braving the physical world here?
2: Absolutely. I'm super excited about it. Yes, I am. So it's in, what, two weeks now?
0: Yeah, it's coming up oh, fast. Oh gosh, yes, I guess it is.
2: You'll be there, right, Lonnie? Uh,
0: yeah. Mike and I are going to have a room. We, yeah, the, the, we'll both be there. Yeah, we we usually um Mike helps me wrangle you know the the students' herd cats with me and try not to burden <laughs> him too much. Um, yeah, but I don't if, you have know, to do anything else. <laughs> <laughs> You're sort easy. of like the uncle of science to these to these kids. Yeah. You know, like, uh, <laughs> Dr. Nelson's coming, yay. You know, because sometimes (laughs) they'll see you on a Skype, like a guest lecture in a class or something, you know, and anyway. All right. Um, I just have one study related to obesity today. This is brand new. I was just looking at it this morning, and I think a lot of our longtime listeners know, like, sometimes I'll go pull the full paper and do a deep dive. Sometimes we'll just talk about it, and then I point everybody else to go do a deep dive if they want, you know, like, because usually the methodology, like, you know, how did they measure that again? And, you know, sometimes there's nuances. But sometimes it's just fun just to do the analysis of what what we have uh, at hand. This one is very interesting, especially I overheard you guys talking before we hit the record button about, you know, colors in the diet and what's healthy and what's not. And, and if you're going to talk about body composition, check this out.
1: Strength and Muscle
0: Sport News. A helpful reminder of BMI's nuances but little support for the quote-unquote obesity paradox. So this just came out in the Journal of Nutrition, Kate uh, Lysett and Jessica Kerr. Uh, And what they're going to do here is question this fat-but-fit mentality that some people have or, you know, challenge size acceptance maybe uh, and really try to drill down into more nuanced body comp when it comes to heart health. So here are just a few tidbits. It says, in the midst of an obesity pandemic... The notion of the obesity paradox is appealing. Could it be that despite having an overweight or obese BMI, I am actually healthy on the inside, that is metabolically healthy? Uh, Media headlines such as Fat But Fit or Healthy Obesity can leave us questioning this rhetoric. So they're going to question this. So this is a commentary about some other research that's in this month in, uh, in the Journal of Nutrition. It says... Uh, In their rigorous study, uh, Zhao et al. extended research looking at associations of body mass index with cardiometabolic risk factors, uh, in this case in in children and adolescents uh, in China. But uh, what they did was they calculated BMI, but they also used DEXA, and they calculated lean mass index and fat mass index. So listeners, if you're not familiar, right, how much lean tissue do you have for your height? or fat tissue specifically, not just body weight, because that's kind of vague. So it says the novelty of their study is the focus on LMI, right, lean mass index as a risk factor for cardiometabolic health in early life. And most of our listeners have a very high lean mass index, right? They're purposely trying to accumulate muscle mass and be heavy for their height. And it does show up in our body mass indices as well. Anyway... um, it says, when each exposure was split into quartiles, body mass index and fat mass index performed similarly, with the odds of all eight cardiometabolic abnormalities gradually increasing from the lowest to the highest quartile, right? So we split the population into fours, essentially. So think every 25th percentile or so. The higher your BMI or the higher your fat mass index, the worse off you were. And that's not surprising, really. Conversely, increasing lean mass index across quartiles was progressively protective against high total cholesterol and high LDL cholesterol. Similarly, compared with the lowest LMI quartile, so in other words, people with the least lean mass, the odds of hyperglycemia and insulin resistance uh, were higher yet similar in all other quartiles. In other words, these findings are consistent with previous literature in adults showing that higher lean mass can be protective against cardiometabolic risks, it says, and they do not support the quote-unquote obesity paradox. Um, now, one of the things they were digging into this is not our population so much, of course, people that are jacked and heavy, heavily muscled, but they were actually concerned about people with a normal BMI, right, in the low 20s, of course, um but really had no muscle mass, right? They had a low lean mass index. So in other words, they're normal weight, but sort of flabby, if you will, fatty. Um, Yeah, but they said they did not see any strong support for the obesity paradox. Again, this is in younger people, but it was consistent with the adults. Um, They also, and I'm not going to dig into it here, but they tried to combine this obesity phenomenon with some obesity phenotypes. Uh, So they're trying to look at more um, a physical expression of, of the overweightedness, anyway, they the authors go on to just kind of finish by saying we will be disappointed if other media declare this evidence again from this Chinese study uh, that there is such a thing as healthy obesity because they they don't prefer that. I don't know. Thoughts, Mike? Have you ever seen anything about comparing BMI or critiquing it and involving lean mass index?
1: Yeah, I like that they actually did a lean mass index. I mean, most of the time I've heard of uh FFMI, so fat-free mass index. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a fair amount of literature on that, even looking at athletes and different positions and what sports they play and things of that nature. So I like that they did that. Hopefully, maybe that'll be a new indicator in the future. And, yeah, I mean, for people who are familiar with this debate, the fit versus fat, or can you be fit and overweight? Uh, Stephen Blair has been talking about that for many years mm-hmm. in in the literature. And, I mean, similar to what they've concluded here, what I've seen and just from the literature is that you may grab a snapshot in time where you can find people who are, you know, even a fair amount overweight and still be healthy. But if you look long enough and they, especially if they start gaining more weight, it's it's not real favorable um and then there's also a fair amount of difference potentially even in just different types of population and person to person. Uh, some people can be you know rather overweight to a point and not really have many metabolic factors get kind of screwy. Um, other people, especially clients I've worked with uh they don't have as much room to gain lean body ma or not lean body mass but fat mass. And you'll start seeing their you know, blood lipids. You'll start seeing all sorts of screwy stuff happen right away. So, hmm. yeah, I, it's kind of surprising to me that it's still a, a debate. A thing. And I think yeah. we're sometimes crossing physiology with psychology. You know, if you're, you know, feeling different about your, your body weight, then you can try to change it and get healthier via physiologic mechanisms, or you may need to see a psychologist possibly too, if it's more of a body image related thing. But it seems like we've kind of merged those all into one messy thing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I thought about three things here and then I'd like to get Wendy's perspective. But, um, I remember as part of my own dietetics training, um, it, it became a little contentious, but we, we were sent to a website specifically. It was an online course about size acceptance. But it was mm-hmm. presented very much from the, the psych- psychological perspective. And, you know, everything's biopsychosocial. And I'd be like, well, you know, my bias is the biology and, you know, tr- tremendous amounts of obesity and body fat. That's very inflammatory tissue. um You know, I understand you're not going to body shame people, and that's not going to help.
1: A different Uh, question.
0: Right, exactly. But let's not, because it was really presented, uh, this, it was almost like a defense, in defense of fat but fit. And I'm like, well, you know, there's two sides to every coin. I just think we need to be kind of uh, cautious here. And I understand that size acceptance and attractiveness has changed over the, you know, centuries, you know, even decades the other thing is, one of my old advisors was a body comp guy, Wayne Sinning. He wrote a lot of the YMCA uh, books. But he used to almost try to, you know, scare me. Like, Lonnie, you're gaining all this, you know, muscle mass. You realize that body mass index in itself, not oh, just, yeah. not just <laughs> fat, is a problem. Your, your heart is a fist-sized muscle, and you're working it over time, buddy. And I'm like, well, Okay. Um, now, we're talking about, about 20 years ago, so to your point, Mike, you'd think that we've, we've been teasing this apart enough that it's not a huge problem. Um, but I get it, right? I mean, I know a lot of heavily muscled people, and their blood pressure runs a little high and things like that. Um, but when they this article mentioned um, some of the glycemia data... I totally, I mean, we just covered that a few months ago, that if you have a ton of muscle mass and that's the primary healthy recipient of blood sugar, then good. You should have better glucose disposal. You should be sending it where you want, you know, as long as the muscle's not real sore and, you know, uh, micro-traumatized. Um, but it just makes sense if you have more muscle mass that I think you'd be healthier in general, despite, yes, okay, I guess a little bit more, you know, cardiac work. Um, but what are you taking away Uh, from this, Wendy?
2: I love, first off, I love that study. Um, I I love the dialogue, the conversation, because I feel like among a lot of organizations, you know, sports nutrition groups and the healthy at every size movement, I mean, these are conversations that are happening about, you know, what's acceptable for health and wellness. And I'm going to defer back to the science. I mean, there's zero benefit to having less lean mass. We know that, you know, having less lean muscle mass is obviously affiliated with, less strength, less mobility. And I always look at, too, I mean, thinking about the long-term effects of aging and the fact that we lose about 8% of our lean mass every decade after 40. I mean, I go back to there's, there's zero benefit to having more lean mass. And, in fact, I think that, you know, being respectful of people's desires for, you know, psychology, Mike mentioned, but what is health and wellness? And I think being able to move well, to have good energy, to sleep well, to not have abnormal, you know, biometrics, having a healthy cholesterol, blood glucose levels, all of that accounts for health, you know, outside of some of the, the BMI. I think BMI is one of the most challenging. <laughs> um, I don't like BMI. I don't use it as a dietitian in my private practice. I, I never discuss BMI with anyone. And there's a lot of physicians too, that have even said, you know, that's something that we're not using, but of course the science and you guys are much more in that um, than I am on a daily basis. But I I would just say that there's more benefits with having greater lean mass than not. And there's a lot of fit shaming that's going on out there too. So it's like, I think we all need to be kind of course, but I I love the science. I I also love the psychology behind it. You know, some people can look in the mirror and they can say, I'm feeling fat today when in fact they're very lean, they have a lot of lean tissue um, and vice versa. I mean, it's kind of a loaded thing. And I I just think as practitioners too, that the dialogue needs to always be positive and that we should never shame anyone. But I also think that it's pretty problematic, the direction that we're moving in as far as the obesity, you know, especially with COVID-19 and the the poor outcomes, you know, of recovery and things like that. So I I think that it's important to have a within normal limit body composition, you know, having more lean mass there, there's literally zero benefits uh, to being overweight and obese. So, Um, It's always a difficult thing. I never want to offend some, you know, offend anyone. But I I do want people to feel motivated to increase their lean mass. And I know this population is obviously, you know, more focused on having, you know, more lean mass. But I also think that um, there's a, a greater population that's at hand, too, that, you know, maybe they think that they have a lot of lean mass, but without doing the DEXA, without doing the testing, how do they really know that? So testing, not guessing is really important. I'm kind of rambling now too, <laughs> hey. but I'm excited Perfect. about it. You know, there's fat shaming, there's fit shaming, there's lots of shaming going on. And I think we just need to understand that what's healthy is, is very individualized.
0: Can you guys tell me about fit shaming? I'm, I'm not that familiar.
2: <laughs> As a woman, I get it a lot. Um, especially someone who has prioritized increasing their Protein, I eat, you know, two to three times the RDA of protein. And as a dietitian, I'm very, you know, I'm very frowned upon for that. Oh, how I'm, dare you? I know, <laughs> right? How dare I get, uh, increase my lean mass, fight off sarcopenia for the future. But, um, yeah, there's a lot of fat shaming going, or excuse me, fit shaming going on. And if you're on Twitter, um, you can see it a lot. I'm not the only one. There's a lot of other fitness professionals and other people out there that experience it. And unfortunately, it's, it's coming from, some of the folks you know in that uh, specific community and i always feel like i have to be careful what i say because someone will come and attack me these days but um it is happening on a very high scale
1: because
2: of you know it anyway so i don't want to monopolize you guys are having a a really great conversation about the science and i get very passionate about you know the fit shaming thing so i will get off my (laughs) pedestal on that
1: no you're fine i i haven't been on twitter for like Two and a because I found it was a trash bin yes. fire, but I can imagine <laughs> that that happens a lot.
2: <laughs> Dumpster fire is what I say,
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, um, yeah, so I think that's a good good discussion to have. I think the simple my simple view is maybe we should all just help each other and stop shaming everyone for whatever they're doing, so <laughs>
2: amen, I say that to everyone,
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh cool. So tell us a little bit more about your origin story, Wendy. How did you become a RD working with all sorts of clients?
2: Yeah, thanks Dr. Mike. So I um started my education at Rochester Community and Technical College. So I'm a Minnesota native. Yay. I grew up in Yeah, go Minnesota nice, right? I, we need That's to right. Do the kindness in the world. Um so I started at RCTC. I did my associate's degree. I played a year of junior college uh, softball. So don't hate on the small schools. I had a great experience, you know, being a college athlete has helped me be relatable to a lot of the clients and athletes I work with today. Um, so played a year and then transferred to the University of Wisconsin Stout in Menominee, Wisconsin. And I did my bachelor's degree in health, wellness and fitness. I was actually the very first person to graduate from that degree. I was originally in dietetics. And I, I think Lonnie could attest to this too. As I was going through the dietetics classes, I was finding that a lot of the science was old and outdated. And I mean, yes, I was young, but I was feeling really frustrated with the information because I was reading some of the eyes to stuff and I was just finding this is so confusing. I mean, what's going on with the messaging here? So I did not want to be a dietitian. You know, it's interesting that I'm a dietitian now, but I switched out of dietetics, then went into health, wellness and fitness. I thought I wanted to do more strength and conditioning, more personal training, And I went and worked for United Health Group, Lifetime Fitness in Minneapolis for a few years, then realized, hey, I do want to be a dietitian. So I went back to the University of Wisconsin Stout, did both the dietetics degree and then also my master of science. And during that time, I acquired experience with our athletes at UW Stout. So I was doing nutrition education with the football team, the hockey team, basketball, cross-country And then I also landed an opportunity to work at the University of Florida as a sports nutrition intern. So I was under Liz Fox and Stephanie Wilson, learned a lot, um, the ins and outs of sports nutrition and just kind of how to fuel some of those elite athletes. And then wrapped up my master's, did my dietetic internship through UW-Stout, traveling between Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Then landed my first job with the United Dairy Industry in Michigan here, which I'm currently at. I'm in um, Grand Rapids at this time, but I was working with the United Dairy Industry for a few years and Mm. then decided to start my own private practice. And now I'm here and I'm doing my work remotely, um, which I was doing actually before the pandemic, but the pandemic has obviously created a greater need for doing more Zoom calls, you know, WebExes, coaching people through email. And just enjoying the process. Um, but I, w- I before the pandemic, I was doing a lot of on-site, you know, corporate wellness, some sports nutrition presentations with some of the local universities here in Michigan, Hope College, Aquinas College, and then I'm also a dietetic preceptor for um a couple of the local colleges here, and doing some mentoring and just trying to grow my business and. I'm continuing on, so that's that's like my elevator pitch, just trying to figure it out as I go. <laughs>
1: wow, that sounds great. And what type of <clears throat> clients or athletes do you work with right now?
2: Currently work with a lot of high school athletes, you know, optimizing either weight loss, weight gain. So there's a lot of, you know, 16-year-old linemen that are over 300 pounds, so how do we work with them to not only improve their relationship with food but get their – body composition in a healthier range. You know, there, there's no reason for a 16 year old to be over 300 pounds. And um, that's something that obviously a dietitian can play a special role in. But I also want to talk about the psychology part, too, is um, creating a relationship with some of the local psychologists and even therapists, too, because, you know, nutrition and health and wellness, it's a multidisciplinary approach. So really bringing those folks to the table, too. Um, and then also some adults. Do, I work with local endurance athletes. Those that are training for a couple of triathlons, Ironman this coming fall. And then I also do a lot of nutrition education with the general population as well. You know, those that are looking to lose that 20 to 30 pounds, those that are trying to increase their protein intake, just need guidance on healthy meal prep, maybe they want to identify their macronutrient breakdown. You know, that's really what's amazing about being a dietitian is having that knowledge and that training and expertise to really help people, you know, identify the best way to eat for them and, you know, really making sense of the literature. And I think Lonnie probably can speak to this more than I can, that there's so much misinformation out there, you know, and just helping people navigate that is a big part of what I do at um, any age, any level of athleticism, you know, whether that be the the recreational athlete to the elite athlete. It's just it's just really exciting. It's an exciting time to be a dietitian and work in healthcare.
1: Do you no, I'll ask Lonnie this too, but I'll start with you, Wendy. Do you think that education with nutrition has become easier in the last maybe three to five years because of access to information? Or has it become harder because of social media and every person whether they have a background in it or not appears to be an expert in nutrition now
2: (laughs) (laughs) that's a great question honestly i think that we have a lot of the imposter syndrome going on i mean those that have the training and the education are often you know not getting out there and having the difficult conversations um I think for most people, probably the influencers, it's frustrating because they are so confident and they tend to know everything because they read a Google article.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: I do think we have information overload right now, but I think, you know, knowledge is power if we can use the right type of resources, knowledge, and apply that in the appropriate way. Um, I really think that for the most part, like sports nutritionists and, and those acquiring some of those weekend certs, it can be problematic, but... I mean, I think it depends. There's again, there's a lot of doctors walking around out there that have significant training, but they also sell out. They smell they sell snake oil to make a buck and they're doing, you know, bad things, right? They're not thinking about the best interests of the client. They're just out to make a buck. And that's the same thing for dietitians, too. I mean, there's an abundance of information out there. And I just think we need to filter, you know, what's evidence based and who's trustworthy and credible um, in navigating that and and moving forward with it. I don't know if that answers your
1: question. At yeah, all. that's perfect. What are your thoughts, Lonnie?
0: Uh, Wendy used the term influencer. I, I <laughs> dislike that term. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm with you, Wendy, totally 100%. What, what I'm saying is just what you said, a weekend certificate, you know, um, a guru, which by definition, they want some level of submission from their their people kind of thing. You know, um, everybody is so eager in social media to offer tutorials. I see it in, with painting. I see it with nutrition. I see it with house repair. Everybody wants to, you know, they're desperate to instruct, um, and they don't have the chops to do it, you know. So um, I think, Mike, I would side on the, on the side of you know, the dichotomy that you were uh, positing there was – is all this information good or not it's good if you can understand some of the key words or even the statistics or methods involved uh it's it's bad when people don't know what they're doing you know like these authors that we were just talking about um they're actually concerned that this most recent study could be used as you know to bolster the the fat but fit mentality uh when in fact maybe that's That's exactly the opposite, you know. Or maybe people people don't understand population specificity, which is why protein is so contentious, I think. That's the main reason. It's just a population specificity thing. People get used to one thing, and they form strong biases, you know, and then they don't realize it might be opposite in a different population. Um, But, yeah, I mean, there's there's hundreds of certificates out there. You get unlicensed gurus doing stuff in nutrition. And, um, you know, you don't often have people with – uh, graduate degrees uh, offering these uh, certifications, you know, and so that that becomes uh, problematic because let's face it, a lot of the certs are they're profit oriented. They're they're the intent. They might they might say the intent is to protect the public, or it's just good. You know, people can be more knowledgeable. But then I see a lot of people they take this cert and they go start practicing nutrition and dietetics essentially, and and that makes me cringe a little
2: going to Lonnie, what you're saying is amazing and i want to just say you know dr mike you have i know you have the flex diet cert and no you're not a dietitian, but you are very knowledgeable and you provide evidence-based you know learnings for people so i I just want to promote that that you know there's plenty of people out there too that are not registered dietitians that still practice according to the science and and do a great job within their scope of practice so i just wanted to highlight that you do a great job with that dr mike
1: appreciate that and I actually resisted doing a certification for a long time because of the reasons both of you mentioned. It's like I don't want to be one of those Yahoos out there like <laughs> selling a weekend certification. I'm like I hate all that crap. And then a marketing buddy pointed out he's like, Well, but what if you could actually get better information and design it however you wanted to do it and only attract the people that would be, you know, interested in a more evidence based system? Mm-hmm. I was like, Oh, But my little screening question now is if people write in, they're like, hey, what little letters do I get after my name after I complete, like, the 25 hours? I'm like, you can put whatever you want, but I don't want your money if the only thing you want is letters. So that's not the reason to take it. So just go away. No, right. You know, Wendy, that's a good point, which is
0: why I I always say people without graduate degrees. I mean, I much rather listen to advice from Mike than from a lot of other people I know. I mean, someone who's worked in, you know, medical devices for hundreds of, hundreds, excuse me, hundreds of years, for hundreds (laughs) of years. But the the information and the understanding you have of something like, um, you know, cardiac health and things like that, you've actually designed and monitored products specifically in that area. I'm very interested to see what you have to say. The certificates that sometimes come out of random PhDs, to me, it's really like the sniff test is what's the intent of this? Right. And if it's to become more knowledgeable, that's one thing. But when people dance around the topic and they kind of let their their certification people believe that then they can go practice, you know, they they don't usually come right out and say it. But you got to be real careful with that. You know, so uh, I'm not saying it's um, only personal enrichment degree or a cert. It can actually add to your other training. But, yeah, to me, it's the intent of a lot of these things.
1: Yeah, it's just gets messy. (laughs) Go
2: ahead, Wendy. I I was just going to say there's one thing that I've been seeing a lot of this, and this has been going on for for years. And I'm not going, it's not that I want to talk ill of anyone, but there's a a certain doctor out there that's promoting, you know, fasting for days on end. And um, it's really problematic when it affects people that have a poor relationship with food. I mean, when you have. Those with eating disorders and they are not seeking the, I mean, this it's a life-threatening ailment and it needs immediate attention. So when you have some of these people that are promoting fad diets that, you know, people fasting on end and then they're ending up with those binging and then unstable blood glucose levels, it's just for me, it's really challenging and concerning because I, I think credentials are great. But again, there's a lot of people with credentials that are out there destroying their uh, client's relationship with food and their mental health. And it's coming at the cost of um, significant uh, challenges for, you know, those that are trying to help those people get back to a good, healthy place. I don't know if you know who I'm talking about, but um, like water fast for five days, you know, you, you yeah. can't tell a 16-year-old to fast for days. They're growing, developing their tissues, and that is just it, – it's so – heartbreaking to me to meet these people and to hear that you know well this doctor told me to do this and it just breaks me
0: well so many of these certifiers they're they're after a niche and it's becoming harder and harder to find your special niche and why you're different right so they have to become more and more radical to get attention on social media right because a lot of like uh, the traditional practice has incorporated different things like you know let's take a look at intermittent fasting or let's take a look at some of these different things or you know um Ketogenic diets you know uh, paleo none of this stuff is new it 's been around for decades, but people are all the, uh, again these a lot of these certificate providers if they 're just profit oriented they 're desperate to stand out right in a marketing way, so they become weirder and weirder in what they 're pitching to people, and a lot of them start to incorporate like you were saying, wendy, the counseling and you know, they become generalized life coaches and success coaches like Tony Robbins type thing. That seems to be the the progression. Um, so they go from weird niche to stand out to life coach over, you know, a five or a 10 year period. And you can see that quite a few times in the industry. So I don't know. It's just a consumer minefield.
1: Yeah, my, my running joke was I was going to have uh, a fasting and meditation retreat at my place. So you're gonna pay me a lot of money, and you're just gonna come here and stare at the tree outside, and I'm not gonna feed you. <laughs> do nothing. <laughs> do nothing. <laughs> JP Sears yep.
2: does that. JP Sears has so many great videos on that. You pay someone so that they can tell you not to eat anything. It's wild. It's so effective too, right?
1: Yeah, it's and I do some intermittent fasting stuff, but I agree. It's I had this prediction ten years ago when I started doing you know some fasting stuff that. One, I never thought it would be trendy, but I'm like, if if it does, it's going to end up going the extreme way of everything in fitness, where you're, who's going to do the longest fast is going to become like the new pissing contest of, oh, I did 24 hours. I did three days. No, I did five days. Well, I did seven days. It's like, oh, God.
2: <laughs> yeah. uh, context is key, though, right? My, my concern is that there's, right, I work with both adult and kids, and there's no... 15 year old that should be going five days without food that is just unacceptable
1: Yeah. yeah so we'll take a break and then speaking about nutrition we'll be back with wendy talking about uh some body composition tips and related to nutrition especially protein and micronutrition
2: Hello there, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, yeah You know who this is. Uh, so I'm here to tell you about uh, Dr. Mike T. Nelson's uh, new book, uh, Why You Should Eat Keto. I don't do it because, I mean, look at me. Come on. I'm fabulous and I'm fantastic.
1: Anyway, you should text the uh, Keto eBook all in one word to 44222
2: to receive your free copy. Do it. Do it now.
0: I Am Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. Okay, listeners, after more than a decade of joining us on the podcast Airwaves, you can now also become viewers on YouTube. This is not our usual simple backup of the audio show, but rather a growing body of video taste tests covering various foods of interest to nutrition enthusiasts, bodybuilders, and powerlifters. From within YouTube, simply search for Iron Radio Taste Test or Nutrition Radio Taste Test, In about 15 minutes, we cover taste and texture similar to other products, uh, usefulness to the co-hosts, and whether we would recommend the product to certain clients. You may even want to watch our podcast feed or Facebook group for which products are coming down the pike so you can taste test them with us. Join us for this new monthly project.
1: Welcome back. We're here with Wendy Erlbeck, who's a RD, and we're talking about uh, some tips for body composition, maybe a little bit in recovery, uh, specifically focused on the protein and micronutrition. So being an RD, you had mentioned earlier that you actually recommend more protein. Uh, my first part of the question is, why is that, and then do you think that's kind of changing, it, that, more protein is becoming more accepted now than a few years ago?
2: Yeah, absolutely, Mike. I would agree that higher protein diets are becoming more acceptable because of the robust literature that's coming out, and people are really starting to recognize that. And I would say even the Academy of Nutrition, um, they've published some articles illustrating that you know youth athletes need more protein. They've even gone as high as 1.2 to 1.4 grams per kilogram on some of their blogs, which I'm really proud of. And that's great to see. Um, I do promote higher protein with all of my clients. So regardless of if they're, you know, fat loss focused or if they're trying to increase their lean mass there's greater benefits with higher protein. And we know that the 0.8 gram per kilogram RDA is way too low. And we've seen that consistently in the literature. There's, you know, more benefits to eating higher protein. You have greater satiety, you have more energy, Um, especially if it's a high quality protein, those that are rich in leucine, right? The um, branched-chain amino acid that's number one for muscle protein synthesis found in eggs, dairy, fish, poultry. Um, So I always tell people, you know, we, we focus on, all right, what are your goals? And then from there, I determine how much protein are they going to need to consume per day based on their body weight and then their activity levels. Um and typically, rule of thumb for most people, it's been, hey, let's just start off our day. Let's power up with protein. You know, making it practical because for most people, Mike, it can be really overwhelming. That they're under-consuming protein from the start because they've been told, oh, protein's bad for my kidneys, or Mm -hmm. protein will (laughs) deteriorate my bone mineral density. You know, some of this nonsense, just like creatine that we hear about as well. So I'm really practical in the sense of, like, let's break this down. You know, so if you're, you know, going to start consuming more protein, like, how much are you consuming right now? All right, let's focus on 20 to 30 grams at each meal, and then let's really optimize our recovery too. By having protein around our training sessions. And we know that that's consistent in the literature. And it's pretty cool to see, you know, more studies coming out too with, you know, fat loss focused clients and then even the aging population, the benefits to eating more protein, you know, two grams per kilogram of body weight for an active, healthy adult is a great place to start. But I would say, you know, sometimes more can be even better, especially if you're, you know, less active. Um, and, and some people too are chronically over consuming in carbohydrates and then they're struggling with their body comp and they're not sure why. Um, there's just more benefits from a satiety, from a, um, you know, long-term longevity and then even, you know, our lean mass and, and tissue. So, um, I'm very passionate about higher protein diets. I've authored a lot of blogs on it as well on both, you know, my website and then also simply faster. And a lot of my young athletes do their parents are totally on board when I explain like, all right, we're trying to optimize muscle protein synthesis here. You know, let's do a casein rich uh, snack before bed so that we can optimize that recovery, you know, slow digesting dairy protein, really tasty to have before bed with it, you know, banana, kiwi, something, something of that nature. Um, I'm really big on that food first approach. So obviously supplements have their place, but if we can consume our protein sources, you know, through those high quality, high biological values, you know, the beef, steak, fish, etc. cetera. Um, that's really my my ultimate goal.
1: Very cool. And with college athletes, have you seen that that's getting better? Not, I don't want to throw the NSCA under the bus, but I probably just <laughs> did that. They had some, we'll say, screwy things about protein for a while.
2: <laughs> no, it's great that you said that. Actually, there was, I won't say the college, but one of their dietitians had, posted about how you you can absorb more than 20 grams at a time oh, it's no. like, no i know right it's like this is uh, in the literature you absorb what your body needs and uses so if you have someone that wasn't consuming any protein and they take in 60 grams they're going to use all of what they need that's you know physiology 101 so it was very uh debilitating to see like well you can't absorb more than 20 grams i mean that's been disproven at this point so um, i would say a lot of the colleges are they're not behind. It's just that they have to be very mindful, of course, of, you know, what they're being told. And I think yep. a, a lot of the politics, So we'll just leave it at that, that most of those, those folks aren't as um, willing, I guess, to push the boundaries of the, the higher protein. Um, so the, you know, the 20 to 30 grams, we know that actually the 30 to 40 grams is, is very consistent with Stu Phillips. I mean, they've been showing that too. So I, I hope that the collegiate athletes get better information just because, It's in their best interest to consume greater protein throughout the day, especially when they're training at such a high volume during camp and, you know, breaking those tissues down. They need additional protein. We need way more than, you know, what that generic recommendation is for, you know, healthy adults.
1: Yeah. I always tell clients because the the 20 or the 30 grams of protein at once, that's one of those, Lou Schuller calls those the the zombie myths that just never seem to die. They just keep coming back like all the time. I tell clients, and even in presentations, I'm like, "Have you ever gone out and had like a, a 16 ounce like steak, and the next morning you don't have like a 16 ounce steak shaped poo the next morning? Like it, your body <laughs> uses it, right? It doesn't, you know, just yeah. stay in one piece and ooh, I only took 20 grams of it. Oop, oop just get rid of the rest of it." it
2: and there's a. I know this is, you know, you guys have bodybuilders that tune in for your show too, but especially the ISSN, I think they, Joey talked about that at, I think it was like 2019, but they had bodybuilders on a high protein diet. I mean, they were consuming five times the RDA of protein, right? And they had no increases in their fat mass and they were maintaining their lean mass. So, I mean you can consume higher protein diet and you won't blow up. I know that's shocking to most people, but
1: yeah. And you can even get a, a whole book on it if you want, I think. Correct. Lonnie. I, I believe so. I believe that's true. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. I was just, I was
0: just, <laughs> I was looking <laughs> I didn't up mean to put you on the spot. No, no. <laughs> I was Mike. <laughs> I was just looking up a few years ago. I wanted to give the actual date. Um, when you said, it's not like you're excreting a whole steak shaped, you know, turd. (laughs) Um, The Ig Ig Nobel Prize were were a couple of, I I think they were like paleo nutrition anthropology guys, and one of them swallowed a shrew, I believe it was, an entire small rodent to test because they were interested in, you know, obviously when you look at fossilized feces, that's how we know about ancient diets, and they wanted to test the the ability of the digestive system and i would wow. just have everybody go take wow. a look at that i'm not suggesting you go freaking do
1: that
2: <laughs> but <laughs> full disclaimer you have to say that these days because people yeah. do it but if, no, true
1: consumption of shrews please <laughs>
2: but if
0: if anybody oh is gosh. thinking yeah that you can't digest you know a big old hunk of meat and and connective tissue I would I would have them go at least follow up on those researchers. Like I said, they, it literally it was one of the Ig Nobel prizes, which is sort of a joke prize, of course, um, for radical and weird science. And, and anyway,
2: <laughs> uh,
1: wow! Oh, that's crazy. Um, so, in addition to our protein, we should probably get some micronutrition in. I know that we'll say by uh, certain uh, groups and certain people that it appears vegetables might even be bad now. Um, oh what, are your, what are your thoughts on that?
2: <laughs> uh, <so laughs> the broccoli's out to kill you. Movement. Yeah, I have so many thoughts on that. Um, honestly, people do not consume enough plants in their diet. I mean, I always say too, like what works for one doesn't always work for another. There's a lot of people out there doing you know, uh, carnivore diet, they, they feel better without some of those sure. high fiber, high antioxidant foods. And I mean, if that works well for you, that's great, but that's not the majority of the, the public and the population. Plus there's so many benefits to our colorful fruits and vegetables from a anti inflammatory standpoint. I mean, they're also incredibly rich, um, you know, sources of micronutrients that also help us be healthy, um, fight off immune inf- infections, you know, illness. And especially, you know, decreasing delayed onset muscle syndrome. So, I mean, especially for athletes and those that are training hard, there's a lot of benefits to consuming, you know, blueberries, tart cherries. Um, I can't say enough about having a colorful plate because most people are under consuming plants and over consuming heavily processed foods. Um, so I think it's really important for people to incorporate a fruit and vegetable with every single meal um, you know, three to five per day is the recommendation, but nine to 11 is a, is a much better, um, range for people to strive for. I know Precision Nutrition has some really great infographs on how to prepare fruits and vegetables. I've sent actually a lot of my clients those things because a lot yeah, of people aren't cooking these days. Um, but right. High vitamin C. I mean, citrus fruits, bell peppers, broccoli, kiwi, berries. I mean, all those items are very, very nutrient dense and fiber is really important too. Talk about satiety and managing blood glucose levels, which also drive our focus, cognition, concentration. Um, I wish people would consume, you know, more fruits and vegetables because of the satiety, the fiber, also very hydrating too. You look at the amount of water that are packed in our fruits and veggies, which is really important for most people that fail to drink enough water.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. One thing I noticed too, and I've done this experiment a couple of times, which I, you know, like it's not a eating a shrew, but. I did super heavy partial squats and basically gave myself patellar tendinosis. And then I tried eating a lot more fruits and vegetables. I was making like little smoothie shakes and all sorts of stuff. And every time I've done it, I've done it three times that when I dramatically increased my micronutrition amount, like my joint pain got better. And so I've noticed that with uh, some clients, too, where it's like I'll look and go, huh, yeah, you had like... um Two fruits and vegetables. Maybe we should bump that up. And a lot of times, some of their aches and pains—not all the time—depends on what they have going on. But more often than not, I was kind of shocked that a lot of their joint pain and things, just the little niggly stuff, uh, gets better too, which is an interesting anecdotal side benefit.
2: That's awesome. And yeah, I mean, we know the benefits too. I mean that. The late-onset muscle syndrome, too, is well, oh, for aging adults that have that joint pain, the aches and, j- um, yeah. aches and pains. It's just amazing you have those testimonies, too, and people can connect the dots that consuming more of those plants, they feel better, they have better energy. That's amazing.
1: What is your big tip to actually consume more fruits and vegetables? Because I think most people are probably on board with that, but maybe they need a few more tips to make it actual practical in their plan each day.
2: Absolutely. I'm a big fan of putting them into omelets, sauteing with your steak, you know, your fish, chicken, baked sweet potatoes too. You can make a really yes. tasty sweet potato fry in the oven, right? And yeah, that's also going to help carbohydrates, refuel those glycogen stores, beta carotene too. I mean, you're just getting all these benefits, but um, adding them into smoothies is also a good idea. I don't like it when people juice because you remove up the fiber um, and then you're just getting all the sugar and, and calories and you're removing that digestion process. So um, I would rather people stick with, you know, sautéing, baking in the oven, adding them also to baked goods. You can do a spinach protein pancake. I have some recipes on my website. Mm, spinach, <laughs> spinach protein
1: is, pancake. Huh.
2: Yeah. And it's a very mm. neutral flavor as well. So, I mean, what you can do is take the, the spinach and blend it up with even a banana too and then add you know, some coconut flour, some cow's milk, and an egg, put all that into your your mixer and then assemble that and throw it on a skillet. And there you go. You can meet, you know, your protein, carbohydrate, and your vegetable needs all in one. Um, wow. And even muffins, things like that. Um, but smoothies are also great too. I mean, for the majority of people that are on the go and being super busy and active, you can blend up some berries with some spinach that can make for a great post-workout recovery shake as well. Throw your creatine and your cow's milk, Greek yogurt, whey protein in there, and you're set to go.
1: Awesome. I know you're a big fan of berries and your oatmeal in the morning, Lonnie. Actually,
0: I just read something not that long ago that phytates and whole grains may help you absorb the anthocyanins from blueberries. And I thought, hot damn, Oh, right? Because that's how there I you did go. <laughs> uh, but to Wendy's point, I've actually used white bean flour in small amounts in pancakes. and. I'm a fan, and I know you do this with, like you were, um, You often point out, Mike, is with the, the drinks and the shakes and stuff. Yeah. Blenderizing and pulverizing veg and just adding it to everything, I think it's one of my favorite functional food trends because you can get broccoli. and yeah, you know, Sometimes it's something you wouldn't even think. Wow, you put that in a shake or a pancake? Yeah, as long as you don't overdo it. Um, yeah. it's, it's a way that you could easily sneak in several servings, I think, of fruits and veg during the day.
2: Oh, absolutely. Egg bakes are good too. If you make, I have an egg bake recipe on my website, but you can blend up, you know, your broccoli, spinach, bell peppers. You can get in, you know, again, leafy greens are rich in iron as well. And then you're consuming the vitamin C, you're enhancing that absorption. Eggs are obviously rich in choline. I mean, those baked goods, you can throw in any type of shredded veggie too. I would encourage everyone to get a food processor or a really good chef's knife to dice all those things up.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for all the tips and everything. We really appreciate it Uh, for people who want to reach out to you or potentially as a client or to make sure they follow all your information. You're always putting out a ton of information. It looks like everywhere, as far as I can tell. Uh, What are some of the best sources and places for that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, first and foremost, thank you both for having me. It's a real honor to speak with you both. It's intimidating because you're both so brilliant and smart. Um, but I really appreciate the opportunity to be on your podcast. And I can be found on my website, nutritionwithwendy.com. And that's Wendy with an I am also very active on Instagram and Twitter. And I'm happy to connect with anyone if they have questions on improving their body composition or even identifying the best macronutrient breakdown to support their goals.
1: Awesome. And you have a newsletter, too, that I think they can get on via your website, correct?
2: Oh, yes. Thank you for sharing that. I just started a newsletter. Yes, you can just go right to my website, and it's available currently free, and you can sign up for recipes, tips, tools, and I also throw in sample menus. So if you are deciding to be plant-based, that's a little spoiler for next month. I have a plant-based menu as a sample for you, you know, optimizing um, some of those higher protein plant sources so thanks for sharing that mike and i I look forward to seeing you guys at issn
1: yeah thank you so much we're excited that you'll be at issn again which is always a good time and i'm sure we'll probably have a little report from from down there for people who can't make it and look forward to seeing everybody down there who can make it thank you so much for being on
2: thank you so much have a blessed day guys
1: thank you